Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you may be listening around the world. Welcome to this week's edition of In Transition, the podcast dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. My name's David Pembroke, and I'm delighted that you've joined me as we explore how governments are using content marketing to strengthen communities and improve the well-being of citizens. Now, to get us started, as is the practice of this program, we like to start with the definition of content marketing in government, and it is adapted from the Content Marketing Institute's definition of content marketing. So, content marketing is a strategic and measurable business process that relies on the curation, creation, and distribution of valuable, relevant, and consistent content to engage and inform a clearly defined audience with the objective of driving a desired citizen or stakeholder action. Well, our guest today is the distinguished Australian public servant, Mr. Andrew Metcalf. Andrew has recently been appointed to Ernst & Young following an extensive career at the highest levels of the Australian government in borders and central agencies. He has extensive policy experience in often contentious areas, as well as in the delivery of client services on a national and global scale. Andrew was the Secretary of the Australian Department of Immigration for seven years, and he was also the Secretary of the Department of Agriculture and Australia's Director of Quarantine. He was involved in all aspects of strategy, policy, governance, and the provision of client services to the more than 30 million people who cross Australia's borders each year. He joins us now, and Andrew, thanks for being in transition. Thanks very much, David, and thanks for the uh, great introduction. It's a, a great pleasure to be here. Andrew, yeah. uh, rather than me go through it, just let's have the Andrew Metcalf story from where it began. Uh, well, we could uh, we could talk for hours about this, and uh, it's one of my favourite topics. But look, uh, the short version is uh, I'm a boy from Toowoomba. I grew up in country Queensland, uh, had a great education, went to Queensland University uh, where I did arts and law. Um, was always interested in public policy and public uh, administration. And so I found myself age 20 as an administrative trainee in the Australian Public Service here in Canberra uh, and then just managed to uh, uh, take up the opportunities that life brings along. So I worked for a long time uh, in the Department of Immigration. Um, I worked uh, on a couple of occasions in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, uh, including as a Deputy Secretary there about 15 years ago. Um, uh, I was a Chief of Staff to uh, a Cabinet Minister, uh, to, to Philip Ruddock, uh, when he was uh, First Minister for Immigration back in 96, 97. Uh, and then, of course, I uh, had the privilege of being secretary, the CEO of the Department of Immigration for about uh, eight years, uh, and uh, and then uh, secretary of the Department of Agriculture. Um, I left the public service about a year ago, um, and now I'm a partner in Ernst & Young, the, the global professional services firm. What did you like about working in the public service? Uh, I liked the fact that you could uh, you were working for Australia, for the Australian government, the Australian community. Um, I was fascinated by uh, the public policy um, um, issues I worked on. 
virtually every aspect of immigration policy, uh, uh, which brings in economic policy, social policy, national security, uh, uh, border security issues uh, for a very long time. Um, and in agriculture, I uh, was just loving making a contribution to the future um, of Australian agriculture and helping form organisations that were relevant um, and that were actually uh, helping advance Australia um, uh, for the community, uh, for the people. I loved working with governments, though. Um, I worked, uh, you know, with with numerous uh, uh, ministers, with several prime ministers, and the chance to make a difference through providing good advice, sound advice, good evidence, um, and then being able to implement uh, issues and make them happen uh, are all the things that I loved about being a public servant. Now, in order to have had the career that you've had, you must have been not only very bright, uh, but also a good communicator. What did communication mean to you and how did you apply that in your career? Um, communication certainly uh, uh, was a critical aspect. Uh, in, in my um, earlier times at more junior levels, uh, you know, communication was all about um, how you uh, were able to uh, work as part of a team or to, uh, uh, to communicate um, um, either um, orally or, um, or in writing to help persuade people um, about the issues that you were working on. Um, so succinctness, um, understanding the, uh, the core issue and finding ways to provide information um, that was uh, um, in a format useful to the audience um, were things that I learned from a, a very early point. As I got into more senior positions, of course, I started leading larger and larger teams. And ultimately, as a secretary of departments, I, I had teams of thousands uh, working for me all around the world, um, in effect, leading multinational organisations. And communication both within the organisation and representing the organisation in its communication with the outside world uh, was critical. Something I enjoyed, uh, but something I took very, very seriously, something I saw as a strategic asset for the organisation. So how was it that you, you took that strategic asset and developed it, perhaps in your, in your daily practice? Uh, uh, in a number of ways. Um, as I uh, moved into those more senior positions, of course, it was not just a question of me personally, heroically um, communicating. Um, but at times, you know, I was the face um, of the organisation. Um, I was the leadership face to our our staff and I was the face of the organisation to, to politicians, to parliament, uh, to the broader uh, community, or indeed in representing Australia um, at overseas conferences and, uh, and meetings. Um, but uh, as I said before, I regarded communication as a strategic asset, uh, and therefore I uh, built um, a network of, of professionals who really understood communication. Um, so I could use um, my skills, the fact that I enjoy communicating, um, but ensure that I was able to get the message through um, in a variety of ways, um, ultimately coming back to that point of being able to communicate with the audience um, whoever that may be, in a way that made sense for them. Now, we'll come to the example of just precisely what you did at the Department of Immigration, which was really uh, world-leading at the time in terms of the communication capability that you, you developed in the department. But you've mentioned a few times the focus on the audience. Have you always been a strategic thinker around communication? Because essentially, 
It is about the audience at the end of the day. Um, well, uh, I'd like to think so, but I possibly never framed it in that particular way. Um, you know, I was one of those kids at school who who liked public speaking and debating, and uh, and so um, influencing people with ideas, um, being able to uh, um, to uh, um, provide persuasive arguments, um, and for me, um, essentially being able to tell stories um, in a way that um, allowed people to get insights and ultimately allowed them to access the ideas that you were seeking to uh, to convey um, or to identify with or, in fact, be motivated with the sorts of issues uh, that you were, were talking about. And particularly as I moved into those very senior roles uh, where I was about motivating staff or about ensuring that they had the right context to understand what they were doing or being the face of the organisation, um, communication, communication skills and thinking hard about the audience uh, were certainly things that were part of my strategy. Now, it, it's very hard to generalise, but what are the difficulties to be an effective communicator in government? Uh, look, uh, um, it's the old adage that um, you know, not everyone is a natural communicator. I'd like to think that that's something that came fairly naturally to me. Um, I understood why, why it was important and I enjoyed the opportunities to um, pass on ideas. But it's very true that not everyone is a natural communicator, um, that they uh, um, may be uh, a more introverted personality or simply less confident. Uh, um, but I've seen some great examples of people who may not have been that comfortable, but who understood it was important. And they found ways either through their own um, uh, methods of communicating or working with others to get the message across. So there's no one simple answer to the issue. Um, um, as I've said, I always started with the audience. Um, who are the people I was seeking to convey messages to? Whose behaviour was I seeking to influence in some way? Whether it was a minister, um, a, a parliamentary committee, um, my own staff, um, the media, um, um, foreign dignitaries. Um, I'd think about things from their perspective and then try and devise a way to ensure that our message was being uh, put to them in a way that they would understand and ultimately identify with and hopefully have the best chance of uh, influencing them in the way that we wish to. I'm often intrigued by that nexus between the public service and the political arm. Can you explain a little bit more about how you went about trying to communicate to your political masters over the years? Um, I suppose there's a, there's a whole variety of, um, of aspects uh, to that question. Um, um, senior departmental uh, staff, senior public servants um, quite often have daily or at times hourly um, interaction with, uh, with ministers, um, with ministers' offices. Um, and so, again, there's a whole range of different uh, ways of, um, of, uh, of, of ensuring that the communication links are open and strong. Uh, trust is a very important part of that. Um, you know, in the best situations I've had are those where I've been able to develop uh, trust and rapport uh, with ministers, and this is not in a party political sense, but simply in a working relationship uh, with whoever happened to be in, uh, in government at the time, um, and to ensure that communication thus became natural and easy, um, that uh, the basics that um, the audience would be paying attention uh, when you sought to communicate um, uh, was one of the critical aspects. Because ministers 
have such busy lives, um, um, you're constantly competing for their attention um, and ensuring that um, um, they knew that when you wanted to talk with them or needed to talk with them, there was something to listen to um, is a key uh, part of it. So that's just one of the many aspects, I suppose, of, uh, of that sort of relationship. And what were some of the tactics you used to grab some of that scarce attention? Uh, look, uh, formal and informal. Um, wherever I had the opportunity uh, with a, a minister and their staff, um, uh, to have some shared experiences at the outset of the relationship because I I worked for directly as a secretary for about seven different ministers. Um, I worked for three prime ministers um, and, uh, you know, I had uh, regular interaction with those ministers on a, on a daily basis, seven days a week. Um, the key for me was establishing that trust and rapport um, at the outset and quite often the best way to do that was to get time together and the best way to get time together was to travel together uh, where we were out of an, an office environment um, and where we were having a, a shared experience. Uh, um, that was great because it developed the personal relationship and the ability to work out what would work with the minister and what wouldn't. Um, but also it gave you the opportunity down the track to you know, reminisce about the times that we'd had um, together. Um, uh, and so while it may seem slightly uh, um, Machiavellian to suggest that, it was simply a sensible thing to do to help build that rapport, that trust, because that platform then allowed the future communication to work so much better. And what about the relationships and building trust with the advisors? Um, essential as well. Um, and particularly uh, um, uh, as a secretary, normally I would uh, interact with the minister's chief of staff or the minister personally, but that's not to say that the key person in the office may have been someone else. And on a particular issue, um, it was good for you to ensure you had a, a working relationship with that person. But of course, for people other than departmental secretaries, for other people who might be involved uh, um, from the public service in interacting with the minister's offices, again, developing that rapport and ultimately ultimately working relationship based on trust is critical. Um, and uh, when it works well, um, when you see ministers and departments and their, um, and their staff working well together, you see great things being done. Um, where those relationships don't work so well, um, for a variety of reasons, um, it's just not good as good as it could be. And that's disappointing. So. Now, I, I, I referred earlier in, in our discussion to the innovation that you brought to the Department of Immigration in the area of communication. And it was perhaps a recognition of the change uh, in communication, the, the movement from reliance on traditional channels to leveraging the utility of digital technologies and digital platforms to go direct. Can you just tell me that story as to where it started to work through in your mind and, and what it was that you ultimately did and for what purpose? Um, I didn't go to the role of Secretary of the Department of Immigration with, with that particular plan in mind. It's something that evolved um, as I learnt more about the uh, learnt more about the role, more about what was required and more about what was possible in terms of communication. Um, but it wouldn't have happened without a couple of things. It wouldn't have happened without a minister uh, in the form of um, um, then Senator Amanda Vanstone um, saying that she wanted that to occur. She was looking for the department to, to have a separate media profile to herself. Um, that uh, sometimes happens with departments, but uh, um, hasn't always happened. But at that particular point, back in the mid-2000s, um, um, Amanda Vanstone as minister was keen for the department to be more able to tell its story. Do you believe um, that 
that's the right thing? Uh, it's, to- a, look, again, there's no right or wrong um, around that. Um, some cynics would say that ministers want to to uh, to have all the good news and the department should uh, sort of uh, you know deal with the bad news. Um, Amanda wasn't like that. Uh, she uh, she dealt with the good and the bad, but she saw a role given the. Uh, operational intensity of the department, the interest the media had in the department, that there was a time where, frankly, the department was best placed. Um, now, that, of course, was a relationship that thus required a extremely strong liaison and trust between the minister's office and the media advisor um, and the department communications people. The second thing uh, why it occurred is that we were able to identify and bring in a highly skilled communications expert uh, in the form of uh, Sandy Logan. Um, who I'd got to know uh, because I used to hear him on the radio every morning um, talking about ACT policing um, issues. Um, And um, the fact that he had uh, a recognisable voice, uh, a slight uh, tinge of that uh, or twinge of that uh, Canadian accent is still there. Um, So he's someone that you heard the voice and you knew who it was. Um, You knew the organisation he worked for um, and you trusted what he said. And so in deciding quite early on... uh, Uh, in my time as Secretary of Immigration, that we needed to substantially lift our public affairs capability, Um, um, we recruited Sandy. uh, And uh, and he, working with me and others, was really able to to do um, everything that we could to to, to make the most of the opportunity that Senator Vanstone provided um, and ultimately to uh, be quite groundbreaking in the way we went about uh, communications, both with our own staff, uh, but more particularly with the media and the general public. Yeah, well, there's no question about that, really, that you built a newsroom within the organisation with all of the capability, be it video, audio, stills, text and graphics. You had a newsroom and you relied on your own newsroom, which is really the trend today in terms of storytelling. Uh, That's exactly right. And for me, it's not as if, um, you know, um, um, I was... uh um, necessarily easily persuaded about that. Um, uh, as a take us back to those conversations. <laughs> well, as, a, as a senior public servant, <laughs> um, um, you are you are naturally quite cautious uh, about the public profile as an organisation, um, and um, and control is important in those circumstances. Control of the message um, is important. So I took a bit of persuading that. Uh, uh, embracing the opportunity to move into our own production of, um, of video, of uh, a voice, of, uh, of, uh, of data, and to commence embracing social media, which was starting to pick up at that time, you know, bearing in mind that's nine or ten years ago now, um, um, uh, it took uh, Sandy and others uh, a bit to convince me, and uh, uh, I was uh, um, someone who wanted to try a little bit first and then see how it went and then try a little bit more. But ultimately, I gained a lot of confidence uh, around that process. So we did have a full production suite. It did mean that we could produce our own material. That meant, of course, that we can control the message. And in a media-hungry world where we were in an active um, um, organisation that was often in the media, the fact that we could provide a very good service to journalists and quick responses the fact that we could provide footage that was um, appropriately um, produced and able to be used uh, quickly uh, meant that um, I think we were able to 
turn around the perception that had previously existed, uh, that the department was out of touch, um, had, uh, had closed its doors, um, was disconnected from uh, the community. That wasn't really the case, but we were able to turn around that perception and really um, find a way to tell our story much better than we had. What would your advice be to communicators around the world, working in government as they are, to try to convince their higher-ups that this is the way to go? What are the arguments that Sandy Logan used on you that helped you to take the deep breath and act? Uh, I think ultimately uh, I could see that what we were doing in the old way was simply no longer working. Um, that uh, that the, the advent of social media uh, and the fact that uh, people were interacting directly with government rather than through the filter of media organisations, but the fact that media organisations were, were constantly after comment um, and the fact that if we weren't present in the conversation, um, someone else would fill the void uh, and uh, ultimately the story would head in directions that were not correct, but it wasn't the media's fault because we weren't actually providing the uh, the facts or the uh, uh, the information. So that's not to say that uh, we were always happy with the way every story t- um, turned out. Um, but it also meant that, um, and again, um, I was fortunate to have the um, permissive environment for this to occur, um, and that always hasn't been the case. And uh, you know that can differ from department to department, and minister to minister, and government to government. But in in that particular period. Um, there was a view that the department needed to do a lot about its image, that we needed to um, be more open with people about what we did and why we did it. And we had a good story to tell, but the only people who were going to tell our story was us. Um, No one else was going to uh, write the headline on the front uh, page of the newspaper, Immigration Department Does Good Job. Um, But we were able to get out there and let people know about the men and women who worked for the department, the jobs they did to help Australians and uh, and guests uh, to Australia, sometimes difficult jobs, but important jobs. And we could provide that content in a way that no one else would. But interestingly, we are now, we're talking about, you know, almost ancient history. We're talking about many, many years ago. Why is it that this particular approach hasn't caught on? Uh, I think it uh, is because of the uh, uh, reluctance um, in government um, uh, to um, have many voices um, talking um, from government about uh, particular issues. Um, in government, control of the message is important. Now, are we talking about at the political level at or the at the senior? Level. Okay, it's at the political at level. At the political level, and I'm, I'm very mindful that ultimately whatever permission exists for the system will come from the comfort that the political level has. Um, in some circumstances, um, it suits... Uh, ministers and prime ministers to have um, officials as spokespersons, usually where they are seen as the expert on an issue, whether the expert is the general um, or uh, the uh, the commissioner of police um, or the head of the Bureau of Meteorology um, or the chief medical officer, um, the, export, the expert has a particular role to play um, in government. Where it gets more difficult, though, uh, and uh, depends on trust and the circumstances, is for departments to be generally responding to media inquiries, um, where ultimately the minister could be the subject of criticism. And so there are some very significant issues to work through there. I mentioned earlier 
the liaison between department and minister's office is critical. It's, you know, you cannot get out of step with each other. Um, and planning and thinking in advance of issues um, as to who is going to do what um, is a critical aspect as well. But I think we've demonstrated that it can work and it can work for the better. So in terms of building that trust and maybe looking at some of the things beyond building trust, what are some of the arguments that people could make to their political masters. I asked you before about the communicators talking to the senior bureaucrats, but now the departments dealing with those political officers. How is it that they can be convinced that this is in their best interest? Because it's a way that their story can be told across multiple channels every day of the week, independent of whatever the media may or may not say. Yeah, I think, again, it, uh, there's no easy answer to that, David. It, uh, it will depend on the on the organisation, on the minister, uh, on the capability of the organisation um, and the overall circumstances that exist. Um, and I think there's probably a distinction to be drawn between um, day-to-day involvement with the media or engagement with uh, with people on um, on social media, for example, and what you might describe as planned campaigns where the government decides that it actually has a message that it wants people to hear, uh, whether it's a, an anti-smoking message or a drive safely message or a, some other message. Um, and that's where the planning uh, and the respective roles of, uh, of minister and department um, can actually uh, complement each other uh, very greatly. So um, with all of these issues, um, no simple answer, but yeah, the reality is is that we live in an environment where um, the media are operating 24 hours a day around the world. Um, departments and ministers are therefore having to operate in that type of uh, fashion. There still is um, the authority that's required on some issues for the minister uh, or the prime minister to personally be available and accountable. Uh, but there are many other aspects of, um, of engaging with media or social media that doesn't require that sort of interaction. And so uh, my advice to my successors um, um, in office is to be very cognizant of this as a key issue, uh, be very cognizant of communications as a key capability uh, and to plan and think carefully as to the most effective ways um, of, uh, of managing the issue and of getting your message across. And increasingly that involves uh, the sort of uh, um, um, use quite deliberately of, of social media, of a media uh, plan in relation to, uh, to broadcast media, etc. What's your view about... Um if I describe them as traditional media and the role of traditional media, because the general view would be that uh, ministerial officers in particular are very interested and very focused on what may or may not be published in newspapers, whereas what may be impacting uh, the relevant audience may not be these days in particular what is printed in the papers. Yeah, I I think there's a much greater growing sophistication um, in relation to that. Even if you were to go back four or five years, I think that um, uh, media advisors and uh, and others would be only focusing on what was on the front page of the uh, the newspapers or leading the ABC News or or running on uh, on television um, um, news. But their time is now also spent um, in looking at and analysing what's happening in social media um, as well, and particularly in that instantaneous forms of communication such as Twitter, um, where um, a, a timely and quick intervention can set the record straight 
whereas doing nothing means that issues can get um, um, a, a real head of steam up. And so I think that you would find around the uh, um, the quality uh, um, governments um, around the world, people focusing on all of those aspects. Um, but I don't think that they've yet got to the final stage, which is really planning how they will um, seek to utilise all of those mechanisms um, in a way that allows them to best get their message across. What was your greatest success? Well, look, I think my, my I'd, I'd like to think my greatest success um, was in helping um, turn around the reputation of the Department of Immigration, um, which in 2005 had been um, very badly um, um, eroded uh, because of some very high profile uh, cases that have occurred around that time, the case of uh, Cornelia Rao, the case of Vivian Alvarez, uh, people who were misidentified by the department, and one of whom was detained for a long time, even though she was a resident of Australia, and one who tragically was misidentified and deported. Um, and so that, together with uh, broader community sentiment uh, in relation to immigration detention issues, had really, um, really trashed the reputation um, of the department. And I think the department um, um, had got into a fairly adversarial uh, position with not only the media, but with thought leaders as well, with commentators and others, the sort of people the media go to, to for a comment, uh, the sort of people who, who, who thus uh, influences um, um, in the media as well. So we did go about a strategic um, um, operation in relation to that. Um, I asked when I joined the department in 2005 for the names of the 25 people who hated us the most. Um, they, uh, my staff said to me, there's more than 25. Uh, and I said, uh, look, uh, let's start I understand that, but let's start, let's start with the 25 who the media turned to for a comment. And let's seek to reassure them that we understand that we've made mistakes, that we are committed to to ensuring they don't happen again, that we're committed to building a better, stronger culture in the organisation. And so that was a very deliberate um, um, uh, process where we got to know those people, we showed them the human size of, uh, side of who we, uh, who we were, um, and ultimately the Immigration Department was probably no longer seen as the uh, the worst organisation in Australia. Uh, there's a few others that have now taken that, um, that up. And I'd like to think that even though it's remained a controversial portfolio and government policy has been tough and controversial at times, particularly around asylum issues, that the competence of the Immigration Department, the attitudes of the staff have not been called into question. And it's a tribute to those people and the jobs they do, um, but also the communication skills um, of successive ministers and of uh, the people in the communications area. And in terms of a, of a misstep, because progress is never made in a, in a linear sense. There's always two steps forward, one back, one to the side. What are some of the things that you learnt along the way? I know in sharing a conversation the other day, you mentioned an example of creating video content from an internal communication point of view that was just a complete flop? Um, yes, and I, I might use that example again. There are, there are obviously other things that we did when we look back, we'd say we might do it differently in the future. So, you know, we're all human, we learn from mistakes and we, uh, we move on. But it was, it was interesting in that um, there are cultural aspects of our communication in, in organisations and um, in an organisation like immigration that... Uh, you know, had uh, people there from their, you know, early 20s through to their late 60s, um, different people had 
comfortable with different forms of communication. Uh, some people preferred the printed written memorandum um, as the way that they received information from the leader. Uh, most people were comfortable and, uh, and liked the town hall style address, the direct personal um, conversation that may come from uh, the secretary or a senior uh, leader. But adopting some of the more modern technologies that were becoming available, such as simply doing a video and broadcasting it to a person's desktop, um, became a bit controversial. Um, one, because uh, it was seen as distracting people during the working day, particularly if they were listening to it and didn't have headphones available, uh, which people usually didn't back then. Um, that was before sort of podcasts and other means of, uh, of uh, providing material on personal devices. Um, and it was also seen by some as a bit of a luxury. You know, why are we spending our money on that type of stuff? Uh, because, you know, we're having to take uh, cuts in other areas. Uh, so part of my communications uh, requirement with my own staff was explaining the need for us to communicate better, um, both internally uh, in a big organisation with people in all sorts of different locations all around the world, getting that common view, getting that common set of values, getting that common set of behaviours, um, but uh, also the investment that we needed to make in talking with the wider public and community as well. Um, so sometimes, and one of the issues I probably should have spent more on at an early point, was not just assuming that people would be receptive to more modern forms of communication, but preparing the way uh, better than we, we might have on occasion. As we look to the future, uh, an increasingly globalised world, uh, broadband technology is going to continue to, uh, to improve. Uh, the use of devices, particularly mobile devices, is driving dramatic change in the way people uh, send information, the way they receive information. Looking into your crystal ball, what advice might you have for your colleagues who are now directing these departments of state about what they can do? What are some of the steps that they can take to get themselves on the path of being able to become more effective communicators by using content marketing uh, in order to achieve their, the objectives of their, of their departments? I think the simple answer is to, uh, to, to, to be conscious of this as an issue and to look at what the best organisations in the world are doing. Um, you know, none of us can predict what extraordinary advances might uh, come in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. Uh, it's impossible to, to predict. Um, you know, as, a, uh, as an anecdote, I'm not all that old, but um, when I started work uh, uh, with the Australian Public Service in 1980, um, there was one fax machine in Queensland um, in an Australian public service department and um, were one to receive a fax, this was a, you know, a very big event, a very big event. You know, I never would have conceived then, 35 years later, that I can communicate um, on a personal device um, with my son who's in London in a youth hostel and the only issue is whether he's got decent Wi-Fi connectivity. Um, you know, the, the, the change in the world has been profound um, and many organisations are still a long way behind in relation to what is now possible. I can't predict what communication um, formats or methods may occur in another 20 or 30 or 40 years. But what I can say is that governments can learn from those people who are doing it extremely well. Um, there are many similarities between government and business. There are many differences. But now that I've worked for government uh, and uh, now that I'm working for a, a very large uh, uh, commercial organisation, um, I see many similarities as well. And I think that any organisation should be, one, aware that this is a critical aspect um, 
in relation to them having the edge over their competitors or just doing their job very well. Would you agree that it's becoming more important? Uh, I think it is because I think when you look at differentiators, um, either the uh, differentiator between commercial success um, and how your uh, competitors are working. Um, So where you have competitors, you need to be um, really focusing on this, given the uh, the nature of business these days. But for government, um, taxpayers are demanding um, access, they're demanding information, um, they're demanding efficiency. Um, and this approach to communication um, is critical in all of those respects. Are you optimistic that government is up to the challenge, that they can get moving and that they can... They can catch the expectation and oh, meet yes. the expectation. Yeah, absolutely, I think we're seeing some great, uh, some great signs. Um, um, I describe the uh, um, the, uh, the the level of maturity is probably patchy at the moment, but we're seeing some organisations who really are understanding um, um, this as a way of interacting with their with their clients, with their citizens, um, in a far more profound way. Um, some countries have taken this possibly a bit further uh, than Australia, and we all look to you know the UK as an example of where this has uh, uh, developed a bit further. But I think we're now seeing examples in Australia where it's working well, where ministers can be assured that it's safe and it's a good thing to do. And uh, there are, of course, champions. Uh, the communications minister is a champion of this type of effort, and uh, I'm sure we'll see uh, more and more activity as people become more familiar, more comfortable and more convinced that this is an efficient way for governments to operate. Andrew Metcalf, thanks for being in Transition. My great pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you'd agree, plenty of insight and value in that discussion with Andrew. Not only is he a smart bloke, but he's a great bloke, and I look forward to working with him in the years ahead. So thanks again for giving up some of your valuable time to be in transition. If you do like what you've heard, If you could pop over to iTunes or Stitcher to give us a review, that would be much appreciated. So thanks again, and I look forward to catching up with you all again next week. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. For more, visit us at intransitionpodcast.com.au.